0: Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm grateful that you're here. There are a lot of you here this service. So hopefully, you've met each other because you're sitting close. I understand that. There are a lot of kids in this service, too. Okay, I have three kids. They can do their thing, and it's perfectly fine, okay? It's perfectly fine. Uh, we've just come off a really, really good week of VBS. It was a whirlwind for all of you that volunteered. You're probably still a little tired. Yes. Yes. Sunday morning came too fast. I'm gonna give you permission this morning to take a holy rest. If you wanna close your eyes and listen to me, that's fine. I'm not gonna write down names, I'm not gonna judge, okay? A holy rest. Uh, this morning, we're gonna go into our second week of Daring to Draw Near, our summer series. We're gonna look at the person of Job, a real life person that dared to draw near. I'm gonna specifically look at chapter 42, the first six verses. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. We'll be some other places before we get there, but that's where we're really going to land. Oftentimes, Job is is read through the context of suffering, which makes a lot of sense when you read the first two chapters, everything that he experienced. There's a lot of things that he experienced. You know, he's a, a good guy, a good parent. He loses his health, loses his family, loses his livelihood, is home, everything is gone. Everything is gone. And I was thinking about how to, how to think about entering into, to Job's experience to be able to preach on it. I was thinking, what if I woke up and that was the, that was true for me. I wake up and my kids are gone. My home is gone. All the good things in my life are gone. I'm covered in sores. And the person that I love the most, my wife is telling me to curse God and die. What would I, at that point, what would I be left holding on to? Because when we read Job, you know, we can talk about things that, you know, it's one of the oldest books in the Bible. It's set in this place called Ooz, this place that isn't often referred to because it's far away from Israel. There are very few, if any, Israelite characters in the story, and there's no clear historical setting. And so, what Job gives us is is a context to focus less on the specifics of what he went through and more on the questions. That He raises. Because when we look at it, Job is a person uh, who has this relationship with God, but that relationship is being redefined, rearranged. He is a man that is daring to draw near to God. This morning, if you're familiar with the acronym DTR, would you mind raising your hand? I want to see who knows the acronym DTR. I see one person back there, okay? In first service, there was only one. It was my father, okay? So he supported me in this. When I say DTR, I think it means define the relationship. Define the relationship. If you are married, then you have had a DTR conversation, whether you knew it or not, okay? If you are single or in a relationship and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what, I've never had a DTR conversation. Well, then buckle up, buttercup, because (laughs) it's coming, It's coming, right? When a guy and a girl come together and they, they start asking these questions on, what are we exactly? How serious are we? What direction are we headed? Are we going together? See, a DTR conversation is crucial to the health and steadfastness of any relationship, which is why we have these DTR conversations, not just in romantic relationships, but every relationship we have. And it typically happens more, more than once more than once. Because we need to know a healthy relationship stands when we know who we are, how serious we are, and where we're going. And that, I think, is the right context for what is happening to Job. Amidst all the calamity and all the suffering and everything that Job is going through, we hear God's voice asking, Job, what are we exactly? Am I your God or am I just a giver of good gifts to you? Job, when everything is stripped away, are you holding on to me? Or are you holding on to something else? Where are we? Now, as 21st century American Christians, that can be difficult to think about. Really, the loving God that we worship and and, and we have a relationship with, that's how he answers, that's how he has DTR conversations, that's how he gets answers to his questions. He takes everything good away from you. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? It's a little over the top, not so loving at all. I think part of the reason for that is 21st century American Christians, we get things backwards, upside down. We forget that he is the potter and we are the clay, and that when we talk about this summer daring to draw near to God, we are talking about daring to draw near to the God of the universe, of the universe. Let us not forget that. So I think it's appropriate to pause for a second remember what exactly God was up to when he made you and when he made me. Let me tell it this way. My six-year-old son, Conrad, uh, for his next birthday, let's say he comes to me and says, hey, dad, I really want a piñata. I really want a, a pinata, so I, I want to I whack it, okay? And I think, okay, buddy, that's great, but we're not going to put the, the normal candy in there. We're going to do it right, and we're going to put the best kind of candy in there. Conrad, what kind of candy do you want? And because he is well-trained every Halloween, he knows Reese's Orange, some, anything as long as it's Reese's Orange, pick that, Snickers, and M&M's, okay? So I say, okay, great. Well, we fill it up. We like put as much in there as possible. The day of the party comes, and he, he's, he's ready, he's excited, we hang it up, everybody goes out there, we put the blindfold on him, and he just stands there. He doesn't hit it. So I, I come over, I lean close, and I say, hey, buddy, swing away. Now's the time, buddy. You can hit it as hard as you want, but he, he just stands there. He just stands there. So I come close again, I say, hey, buddy, you got to hit this thing. You got to hit it if you want the good stuff on the inside to come out but he doesn't do it. He takes off his blindfold and he looks at it and he says, dad, it's it's way too pretty. I don't want to ruin it. And I'm thinking to myself, but you got to get through that pretty facade in order to get to the good stuff. Reese cups. Okay. They're there. You got to get through the pretty facade. And I'm thinking to myself, man, that sounds a whole lot like our 21st century American culture, doesn't it? Because much of our culture's dialogue is centered around being a human being and and, and being a a good person and a good life. That means we got to focus on the things on the outside, stuff that matters, but it doesn't matter nearly as much as we think it does. Things like our education, our retirement plan, our status in the community, the house we live in, the neighborhood we live in, the car we drive, our comfort. I mean, look at who we follow on social media, what we watch, who we celebrate. Look at our American idols. Look at how we spend our time. It speaks to who we value and what we value. We may not say it out loud, but our actions tell it how it really is. But when we think about God's spiritual equation, what he equates value to, it typically isn't the things on there on the outside, it's the things that are on the inside. It's this, this cultivated relationship that we have with our God. Not that he doesn't care about those other things, but he's, he's more focused on, on us and our hearts. Because oftentimes when we think about our, our job and our relationships, it's all about being personally fulfilled. Is this job going to personally fulfill me? Is this person gonna personally fulfill me? If I get this vehicle, is that going to meet my needs? And all the while God's saying, Hey, hey, do, do I know you? Do I know you? Or oftentimes in our American culture, it's all about what we've done, things that we've done. We teach our kids from the from the very youngest, we've got to get good grades. And we graduate high school and college, and it's about where we went to school and the letters behind our name, and, and the entire time God's saying, hey. Do you actually need me? Do you need me? Our American dream is to to grow up, get married, have a dog, have kids, get a house. It doesn't have to be a castle per se, but just something that we can be comfortable that we can we can enjoy and God say, "Hey, I know you don't want a castle, but am I your king? Am I your king?" See, these are DTR, defining the relationship type questions. These are drawing near-type questions. And these are the questions that Job wrestles with for an entire week in complete silence. His friends join him, and they are quiet, and they are wrestling with these questions and the thoughts of God and justice and what he's all about. And if you read the entire account of Job's life, Job doesn't just internalize them and stay quiet. He begins to vocalize them, and his friends do too. And they express their frustration at each other. They express their frustration at God. And for 36 chapters, Job is talking and asking questions, but there aren't many answers There aren't many answers. And then in Job chapter 38, God begins to speak. Job chapter 38, God begins to speak. So if you've got a Bible, you can look there. Side note, how important it is that God speaks to us. How humbling is it that God of the universe speaks to us? In the craziness of our cultural moment, don't we need God to speak to us? To know what to do and where to go and how to love and how to speak truth? See, personally, I love the various occurrences in the the Bible, Old Testament and New, when God speaks for himself, about himself. When God speaks for himself, about himself. In Job 38, this is one of the longest sections of that. I love this passage, but it's not the only one. In Exodus 3, when Moses is at the burning bush and he's interacting with God, and Moses is thinking to himself, What am I supposed to say to the people back in Egypt? How, How am I supposed to describe you? God's like, I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then later on, Exodus 34, after the whole golden calf debacle, Moses is, is with God and they're, they're talking, and, and God is reminding Moses who he is. He's like, Moses, remember, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger. In the New Testament, we see it as well. Jesus speaks for himself in Matthew 11 when he says, Take my yoke upon me, upon you. Hey, okay, learn these unforced rhythms because I am gentle. And lowly in heart. And here in Job, we see one of these long examples. All of the frustration, all of the questions that Job has been asking, now it's God's turn to speak, and he has some questions for Job. Look at verse 1 in chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, out of the storm, and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? And prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. It's unbelievable, isn't it? God speaking for himself, about himself. It's, it's unreal, this God of the universe that we worship. God speaks to Job in this way for two whole chapters. Imagine receiving that. Because God's asking him about the stars. Job, where'd they come from? Or how lions hunt, about lightning and thunder, about the courage and strength of horses. And then in Job 40, we read this. The Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder, Job, that's you, contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job realizes he has overstepped, and all he can do is just cover his mouth. It's interesting, though, God isn't done with Job yet. In in, uh, 40, verse 7, he says, Dress for action like a man, gird up your loins again, Job. I'm not done asking questions. And God continues for another two chapters, chapter 40 and chapter 41. And that brings us to chapter 42. And what I want to do is read the first six verses in the ESV translation. And then I'm going to immediately read it in the message translation. ESV says this Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you, God, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. You said, Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And the message says this, Job answered, God, I'm convinced. God, you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issues, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it, I was the one. I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen, let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. Job, you give the answers. I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise. I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. Do you see it? We're asking ourselves, what, why all the suffering? Why all the calamity? God, what were you up to when you were trying to have this DTR conversation? And Job answers it in verse 5. He admits that even though he was a righteous man, and God agrees that he is a righteous man, Job admits that God was just a rumor. He was just a rumor. There was no real relationship. That's what we all struggle with, isn't it? Far too often there's way too much distance between God and us. He ends up just being a rumor when everything is stripped away. We find that we're not holding on to him at all. It's just some thoughts that we've taken from someone else, something that we've heard on the radio. Maybe the person sitting next to you. That's all we're holding on to. God is just a rumor. and We're not holding on to God himself. So is what was true of Job true of you? Ask yourself this. Is God just a rumor for you? And if so, how do we change that? How do we have a DTR type conversation that leads us to deeper intimacy with our God? How do we draw near? How do we draw near? Well, if we borrow from the language from the message, this idea of a rumor, we all know about rumors because surely we don't ever spread them. Okay, but a rumor is when you have distance between the source and the information and the recipient of the information. The further those are apart, the more likely there's going to be a rumor. Something untrue is there. But when the recipient of the information is right next to the source, a rumor has no oxygen to breathe. It cannot, it cannot continue. That's the kind of relationship we need, a one-to-one relationship with God. That's why Jesus says when he's with his disciples, before he is crucified, and they're there in the upper room, And he's saying, guys, I am the vine. Stay connected to me. Stay connected to the vine. It doesn't mean you're connected to someone else that's connected to the vine. You have to have that one relationship with God. Why? Because God cannot be loved and God cannot be worshipped from a distance. He cannot be loved and cannot be worshipped from a distance. So how do we eliminate the distance? Using Job as an example, Well, as as Job begins to, to dare to draw near, what does he do? He gets quiet. For seven whole days, Job gets quiet. Five seconds of quiet feels awkward to us, doesn't it? Job is quiet for an entire week. And his friends are quiet for an entire week. We may need to just get quiet so we can listen. Which means we need to turn off social media. We need to turn off the TV. We need to turn off the radio. We need to stop binge-watching Netflix and acting like it's something to be proud of. Because the entire time we're watching episode after episode, the God of the universe is just patiently waiting for you to listen to him. He's just waiting. What else can we do? What else can we learn from Job? Well, as he's quiet, he has a group of people, these friends, that are willing to sit with him in his pain and experience what he is experiencing to the best of their ability. Now you can study the theological ramifications of some of the things that they said later on in Job, and they weren't the best. Okay. But they were there. They were present. So we can't be strangers with one another. If anything, COVID-19 made it really easy for people to walk in and walk out of this place. And that's not what we want. That's not what God wants. He wants us to come and stay a while, to find other people to live life with, to challenge us, to help us grow. I was talking with a friend here at New Hope that recently started a, a D group here. And he was expressing some of the frustrations that some of the people in his group were experiencing because they were here. They felt like this was a community of, of people. It felt like a family, but they weren't part of it. They didn't know people. I mean, I grew up here. I, I know people, but they didn't. And so what did they do? They decided they were going to try out a, a D group so they can. Make it a little bit smaller so they can become more intimate. And you know what? On a Sunday morning, they see some familiar faces now. That group begins to be a, a, an intimate family for them. It doesn't mean that it's going we to, don't, we don't have microwave solutions for this. It's going to take time. Okay, but we get quiet. We find other people. When we do this, we come to find that God is not just someone that we read about or listen to on Caleb or sing about or talk about at church. God is to be experienced. God is to be experienced. Each one of us is made to be in a relationship with him, to experience him. Think about going on your first date with your crush, okay? Back in high school or college or whatever it is, you're, as a guy, you're setting up that date and you're thinking, okay, what, what do I do, mom and dad? I don't know. And so you love this person dearly. And so you're like, okay, let's go out to a nice dinner, maybe some mini golf, you know, Helpful competition, or you know, is good at times, and then we'll go out for ice cream. So you're set up the date, you're ready for it, and you, right before you head off, your parents are saying, Hey, we can't wait to hear how it went. So, sure enough, a few hours later, you come back. Is this what you would say? And your parents ask, Hey, tell us how it went. We're, how did it go? Are you really gonna say, Well, you know, we went to the restaurant and she had a salad with ranch dressing, and then we went to the, the pup hut and, you know, I didn't have any hole-in-one, but she had one on the, you know, the 12th hole. That was great. And then ice cream, you know, she had vanilla, and I'm a, you know, I like chocolate chip. Is that the way that you would describe the experience? No way. No way. You, because of the, you, you would spend time saying, man, I, it was so special to just be with her, to just sit in the car next to her, just to hear her talk. Man, I'm head over heels with her. That, this date was awesome. Well, that's more like how our relationship with God should be. It's, our relationship with God is not just sitting in a seat and listening to some songs and reading some Bible verses from time to time. There's meant to be depth to the relationship so that when you're in his presence and you get to experience him, him the, the only response is, this is awesome. I love him. Now, how do we respond? When we begin to dare to draw near, but we feel like God is the one that's created the distance. And God is the one that is silent. What do we do then? Well, that's a really, really difficult question to answer. All I can do is direct you to God's Word. When we read the story of God's Word, we see that part of daring to draw near to God is recognizing that God has been daring to draw near to you for a very, very long time. He has been pursuing you since the creation of of the universe. He is not far from any one of us. If you look at Acts 17, if you were to flip there quickly and you see Paul speaking in the Areopagus in Athens to so this group of people that are they're learned, and they're all these idols and all these gods, and Paul is trying to help them understand who God really is. Paul says this: And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they insert your name, that you should seek God and perhaps find your way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from any one of us. God is pursuing you. He may be quiet. He may feel distant, but he is not. God's word reminds us that he is not far away. And sometimes when we feel like God has been running away, really it's been us that have been running the wrong direction and we, we're trying to get away from him for whatever reason. Well, God's word speaks to that too. In Psalm, Psalm 139, it says this, Lord, you've searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I I can't attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? I can't run from you. Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the depths, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. God's word tells the story of a God who has been pursuing us. He's holding us because God is the God who knows. He knows. I may not know. But God knows. And we see that God is drawing near to us. And so that means for each one of us, every one of us, every day we are invited to draw near to him. Each of us wakes up a spiritual beggar in need to, as we read earlier, to taste and see that the Lord is good. It doesn't matter how well you feasted on God's word yesterday, you will die without it today. Because any distance between God and you is too much. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. That's why we meet weekly. That's why we have groups. That's why we have classes. That's why we have ministries at all, because we know that we cannot allow there to be any distance. Everything we do as a church is to follow hard after God and to eliminate the distance. Is it a list of do's and don'ts? No, it's just, I want to be with him. I want to be near him. That's why we do what we do on Sunday morning. That's why Ben selects the songs that he does. That's why we preach the way that we do. That's why we emphasize communion the way that we do. Communion is probably the most important thing that we do, and it's not flashy, but it's so important. Why? Because when we take the bread and the cup, we have the opportunity to have a DTR conversation with our God. We can have a DTR conversation, a defining the relationship conversation each time we take communion, where we get to redefine from our perspective what he means to us and how important he is. We get to take the things that have been a substitute and we remove them. And we say, Jesus, it it is all about you. That's why it's such a special time. But more than that, we don't just get to have a DTR conversation with our God. Our God has a DTR conversation with us. When we take the bread and the cup, we speak to him, but he speaks to us. And he reminds us who he is. And he reminds us about what Jesus went through and how he dared to draw near and what he had to experience to redefine our relationship with him. And so that, that's why we take communion. That's why I think the most appropriate thing that we can do right now is to pause, not transition, but to pause and to say, I need, there's, there's too much distance. I need to have a DTR conversation with my God. And so I'm going to invite you. I'm going to pray to take the bread and the cup and to sit in silence for a bit, to reflect, to remember, to proclaim This isn't just something we do. After I pray, I am going to go to the back and grab a cup, and I am going to sit and be quiet. I took communion for a service. Why? Why do I do it again? Because I need to be close to my God, and so do you. So let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we are so quick, so quick to follow after substitutes. but We... Humbly remember that you are the God of the universe and that you have pursued us in ways that we can't fully understand. We see it in the person of Jesus. So we're thankful for him. Father, help rearrange our hearts and minds to be fully devoted to you. Help us to give our everything to you so that we can be the kind of people that you want us to be. So we pray now in Jesus' name.